0: I'm going to be a great film star. That is, if booze and sex don't get me first. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. All right, welcome back, Tatum, to our podcast. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, have you been watching anything this week? I know it's been, um, as we've discussed in many of the (laughs) previous episodes, it's been a bit of a... uh, Tough time at work, not a whole lot of time for you to be watching things. So,
1: yeah, I I have not watched anything this week. It's been <laughs> it's been a crazy week uh work-wise, but also got a lot of stuff going on in the personal life. So, yeah, I've been trying to just like come home and chill and then go to bed. I've watched a lot of YouTube. Um I've been finding a lot of like like self care YouTube channels that I like, where they either just help me relax or help me just find fun uh, and just laugh a little bit. So, yeah, I've just been watching like a 15 minute YouTube video when I come home and then passing out on my bed. So, nice. yeah, that's about exactly
0: what YouTube should be used for. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, I've been watching a few things here and there. I've not been watching things as regularly as usual. Um, I. Watched John Wick Chapter 4, which uh, this will tell you when, roughly when we're recording this, is that it it just came out uh, within the last week. So that was great. If you're interested in the John Wick franchise, highly recommend. Um, and basically, it's probably... Almost three hours long, and I spent the entire time with a huge grin on my face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting the Oscar campaign now for Donnie Yen, so uh, keep an I've eye out for that. I've heard
1: a lot of positive feedback on Donnie Yen. People oh my are goodness. super into his performance. He's
0: fantastic. He's the I,
1: villain, right?
0: He is, I don't want to spoil too much. Um, he's certainly an antagonist, but I think villain would be okay. um, maybe inaccurate. Okay. Um, but he is fantastic. Uh, The other big thing that I watched within the last week is Midnight Mass, which is a Netflix series that came out uh, last year or the year before. I'm not quite sure. As usual, I'm extremely late to anything that comes out on Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I absolutely loved Midnight Mass. Um, It's something that I had... Um, been kind of interested in when it came along. Um, took me a while to finally sit down and watch it because it is a horror show. And I am uh, i have a mixed relationship with horror. I'm slowly getting more into it. But I, there are limits on what I can deal with in horror. Uh, fortunately, this turned out to be one that I, I could deal with. But it is a an absolutely fantastic show. If anyone has not seen it and is interested, the show follows... Uh, it takes place in a remote island, um, a sort of fishing community, and um, so there's two things that happen at the beginning of the show. One is that a, um, <clears throat> a man who'd grown up on the island, but who had been in prison for several years for um, a drunk driving accident that killed a girl, he returns to the island. He gets out of prison, returns to the island, and is basically dealing with how to be structuring the rest of his life with this enormous weight of grief and regret. Um, He's now sober. He was a, he's an alcoholic. He's now sober. Um, So trying to retain that and um, try, yeah, trying to come to some sort of, um, process all of the the remorse that he feels and, and find out whether forgiveness might be possible in that circumstance. But then at the same time, there is a new priest that arrives on the island. There's a, a Catholic church on the island that a lot of the, the townspeople attend. And he's this very charismatic, uh, enigmatic figure played by Hamish Linklater, who's an actor that I've loved for a long time. And I'm so excited that he's getting more recognition through this series. Um, I don't want to spoil any more because there are a lot of twists and turns that it takes, but it is, if you have any interest in um, just themes of religion and its interaction with with horror, with doubt, with faith, with science, with um, sort of spirituality and existential questions of death and meaning and grief, um, all of these things are explored in this series in, I think, a very thoughtful, even-handed way. Um, there are many different perspectives that are explored through different characters, and I think the show does a good t- good job of um, presenting these different views respectfully without coming down to completely on one side or another. So yeah, Midnight Mass, really, really great show. Tatum, did you watch that when it came out?
1: No, I... Um... I actually don't know if I've ever heard of it, but it sounds really interesting. I'll have to. I, I feel like at this point in my life, most Netflix originals, I'm very meh on in terms of like. <laughs> I, I, feel I just you. I've kind of lost my faith in the quality of Netflix series, <laughs> so I kind of don't even bother anymore. Mm-hmm. But if I hear recommendations, I'll. I'm willing to check them out, and this one actually sounds sounds pretty good. So yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I definitely agree with you. I um. What I think is so strong about this film, or film, series, it's a seven episode series, is the quality of the writing. It's written and directed by Mike Flanagan. And then the acting, all of the acting is uniformly fantastic. Um, I will say, I've complained about this before, but the Netflix kind of house style of cinematography really annoys me. There were, multi- really? there were multiple scenes where clearly they had one lighting set up and then they would just cut to different angles. And a fi- an actor's face would be half in shadow. And it's not an intentional choice in the scene. It's just because they could not bother to light your damn <laughs> actor's faces. <laughs> no, <laughs> like they're Geneva, giving this beautiful art. monologue and doing all of this acting. And you can't bother to let your actor's faces. It drove me nuts. But um, that small quibble aside, <laughs> it is a very otherwise a very well-written, very ac-
1: well-acted um, series. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. It, it definitely sounds like something I would be be interested in. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, going from the dark and <laughs> treacherous to even more dark and treacherous.
1: All right. Today on the show, we are... Do you think that are... cabaret is even more dark and treacherous than the themes you were just talking about? Well, I mean, they're not dissimilar themes. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, anyway continue <laughs> all right
0: today in the show we are discussing the 1972 musical cabaret bob fossey's film adaptation of the tony award-winning musical um broadway musical the film stars liza minnelli michael york and joel gray with original songs written for the film by candor ebb a songwriting team who also wrote the original broadway musical Story of Cabaret is based on the semi-autobiographical novels of Christopher Isherwood, a gay English expat who witnessed the rise of Nazism in Weimar-era Berlin. So that is uh, 1920s, early 1930s Berlin. The film follows Brian Roberts, a young British philosophy student who moves to Berlin and meets Sally Bowles, a bubbly American performer at the local cabaret club called the Kit Kat Club. She dreams of becoming a famous film actress. Brian and Sally, who are played respectively by Michael York and Liza Minnelli, become friends, and eventually they become lovers, despite Brian's confusion over his own sexuality. Their friendship is eventually tested by the arrival of Maximilian von Hude, I think is how his name is pronounced, a wealthy German aristocrat who introduces them to the high life and eventually begins sleeping with both of them. When Max disappears, Sally learns that she's pregnant, and she and Brian briefly become engaged. However, Sally realizes that she could never give up her dreams of stardom to live as a professor's wife. When Brian discovers that she's had an abortion, he's at first angry, but eventually comes to understand her decision, and he returns to England alone. Running alongside the story of Sally and Brian, the film tracks the rise of the Nazi party and growing anti-Semitism in early 1930s Germany. A secondary plot follows the love story between Natalia, a wealthy Jewish heiress, and Fritz, a charming gigolo who's hiding his own Jewish heritage in order to be accepted by German society. One of the film's most fascinating characters is that of the MC, played by Joel Grey. As the master of ceremonies at the Kit Kat Club, the MC introduces and performs in most of the musical numbers, and his presence throughout takes on an increasingly sinister nature. At the beginning, the MC seems to break speak directly into the camera and welcome audiences into the world of the cabaret. In here, he says, life is beautiful. At the end, he makes a similar statement, but it takes on a chilling, ironic quality when the camera pans over to show dozens of men in Nazi brown shirt uniforms sitting in the audience. All right, Tatum, had you seen Cabaret before?
1: And what were your thoughts on this watch? So, I had thought that I'd seen this movie, but if I'm being perfectly honest, I confuse this movie with Chicago a lot. Oh, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and like I, they're understandable in my, in my mind. They're the same movie until I start watching it, and I'm like, oh wait a minute, this is not this is not Chicago. This is something <laughs> yeah. else. Um, and I also kind of confuse this with Sweet Charity too, because you know another Bob Fosse uh, film. But anyway. So it turns out I had not seen Cabaret. I thought I had, um, but I did not, I had not. And I, I, here, here's the thing. So point one, I loved this movie. I, I really, really, really loved it. I think that there's a lot to, um, admire here and there's so much going on. Um, but at the same time, I do feel like this is a movie that I need to watch again, uh, Mm. because there is so much, Going on in this movie. And I feel like on first watch, I was trying to figure out what was going on in between the characters in terms of like, wait, so I thought he was gay and that's why they weren't together. Wait, now they're, oh, wait, but now, hold on. And she's doing, wait, but he's, who is she? It was, I feel like I was spending a lot of energy just trying to figure out who the people were and Mm. what they were doing and why. their relationships with each other right as opposed to but I felt like there was so much other symbolism going on in terms of cinematography and costume design and the intricacies of the placements of the songs and how the songs correlate to what's happening in the story and how they transition like I could tell that there was so much more going on here which is which definitely contributed to why I loved this movie because I had this strong sense of there is so much to dive into here um but at the same time i wasn't it, 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 this was there was just so much going on that i i i think i didn't fully uh grasp everything that it was trying to communicate uh but i will i will definitely watch this again i think that this movie is very well made um i really i really thought that this was just a fascinating film to watch i admire the craft a lot Um, I didn't really want to like this movie because I'm not the biggest fan of Bob Fosse as a person, Um, but that aside, uh, I think that this is an incredible work of art. And I do have to say, this might sound like an extreme statement, but I literally went through the list online of all of the Best Actress winners I think that out of all of the best actress performances, out of the winners that I've seen, I think that this is the best. I wow. mm-hmm. I was absolutely blown away by Liza Minnelli's performance and enraptured by by the character of Sally. And um, I just, I, I could not keep my eyes off of her. Like, she mm-hmm. just, I, I, she's not even Liza Minnelli. She is this character. Yeah. And <laughs> I guess... I, I, in in fair in fairness, I don't really know much about Liza Minnelli as a as a person in terms of what her behavior is like. So maybe she is more like this character in person than I know. I, I'm not sure, um, but this character I just felt like was so well realized, and there was so much there for her to bring to life. And I thought she just did an incredible job. Um, I I mean, obviously, she can sing and she can dance, and and she's beautiful, and and the costume and the hair and makeup helps a lot bring her, with mm-hmm. bringing her character to life. But I don't know, just just her performance in terms of her her voice and her facial expressions, and and um, yeah, I I think that I mean this kind of goes without saying. I was going to say if she wasn't in this movie, I wouldn't like it as much. <laughs> well, obviously, because the whole movie kind of revolves around right, her yeah. in a way, but um. <laughs> yeah, I just found her to be an incredibly compelling protagonist. Um, and I just felt like there was so much, so much complexity to her, um, that we don't really see cause it's not explicitly told to us, but we can, or at least me, like I could get a sense of maybe what her past was like and why she's at where she is now and, and mm-hmm. what she's been through. And, um, Yeah, I was just, I was really impressed with this movie as a whole. And I think that Liza Minnelli's performance brought it to another level for me. So I'm really glad that you suggested this. Um, I I look forward to watching it again so that I can analyze it more. Because like I said, the thing that I was really frustrated while watching this movie, because I could tell that there was so much there. I was like, I really want to study more of why they're choosing this song right now. Mm-hmm. And why everything that Joel Gray, how everything that he's saying is affecting or or attached to what's going on outside of the cabaret. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would love to dive into that more. But on first watch, for me, it was impossible. I tried and I was like, no, this is too much <laughs> brain power. I don't want this to become uh-huh. like a academic thing the first time I watch it. I want to just experience it. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I I I really, really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm so happy that you said that.
0: Uh, I had not realized that you'd seen it before. I think I had just Me been neither. assuming that you would That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, for anyone who's not aware, Chicago um, also has Bob Fosse connections. I believe Bob Fosse was the director of the original when Chicago was originally staged on Broadway. Um, I should probably look that up to, to make sure I'm not um, completely um, misattributing it. But um yeah, a lot of the sort of there there are a lot of visual similarities just because Bob Fosse's style is so iconic in terms of the choreography, in terms of the sort of lighting and costuming choices, his use of um, kind of black costuming, um, you know, uh, solid colors and um, uh, shadow and and stripe and things like that. Um, you know, very very iconic and consistent within Bob Bob, Fos- Bob Fosse's oeuvre. Um yeah, I I personally I love Bob Fosse as a director. I've seen all of his films with the exception of Lenny. Um granted he he didn't film. <laughs> he didn't make very many films, but um yeah, all all his films that I've seen, I've liked to one degree or another. And I just think he's a really visionary and brilliant director despite being as you said, a very complex not always a good person. Um, I think that there is this streak of cynicism and even self loathing to him that is really fascinating. And um, the sort of I don't know the the tensions in his work between you know he is a showman. He's worked in show business his entire life. Um, he understood that environment so intimately. But there's also this kind of ambiguity about show business in the film, you know, the way that entertainment can be used as not just a distraction against the world, but kind of intentionally burying your head in the sand, in a sense, um, that I find really, really fascinating. Um, Yeah, I (laughs) so I've done some, a, a lot of research for my master's about musicals and the history of the musical I wasn't writing about um kind of cabaret in in the 1970s i was re- uh writing about in uh earlier eras but um in doing a lot of research about the musical i just really enjoy learning about the history of the musical so i have some notes on that that i'd love to speak on later but for now um maybe we, we won't get to that quite yet but yeah i could not agree with you more about liza minelli i think she is absolutely fantastic in this role um it is really fascinating watching her and thinking about, you know, I've seen so many movies with her mother, Judy Garland, and seeing the kind of similarities between them and their performing style, but the way that Liza Minnelli is such a, she's such a unique performer. She is so much her own person, and the way that she's able to use her her voice and her physicality, um, the the way that she's able to embody this sort of, um, very liber- liberated, but also very kind of damaged and vulnerable person all in one um, is just so heartrending and so, you know, she's such a real live character and you feel for her. You sometimes want to maybe shake her a little bit when she makes um, some of the decisions that she makes, but you also, you ultimately always understand her and you're always on her side. Yeah, I think she's really wonderful in this movie.
1: Would you, do you, do you see the kind of the angle at which I'm coming from when I say that she, in my opinion, gives mm-hmm. the best performance out of all of the best actress winners? Or are you like Tatum? That's completely insane. I'm not saying you have to, <laughs> I'm not saying you have to agree with me, but yeah. do, you, do you see where I'm coming from when I say that? Or are you like, that's nuts? I mean, I've not recently looked
0: at the list of all the best actress winners, so I feel like I can't make a judgment in terms of just, like, what else is out there at the moment. But especially, like, considering... I mean, she had been in movies before. Um, You know, she's done a lot of Broadway work throughout her her career, obviously, but Sally Bowles is just such a role that is... It fit her like a glove, and I feel like to some extent for the rest of her career, that's kind of how you know to my understanding of it um it kind of just it defines her so much Mm. you know and that role is so associated with her um in a good way like it's just it's such an iconic role um yeah it's crazy to think that there was a you know a whole broadway musical that was on stage and won a Tony with a completely different actress in the role. It's hard to think of someone else playing Sally Bowles. And I mean, that's a musical that's been revived many times. I've never seen it on stage. I would love to see it on stage because I know there are a lot of differences between the film and the original Broadway stage musical. I can't really speak to those. I don't know what they are. Um, But yeah, it's just, you know, you watch this film having never seen the Broadway musical and it's impossible to think of anyone else playing this role.
1: Yeah, I can't. I can't even imagine anyone else playing it. That's that's just, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have to say, I'm sure if I didn't bring it up, you would bring it up eventually. <laughs> it was going to happen mm-hmm. regardless. But <laughs> the whole entire time watching this movie, I was thinking of the Liza Minnelli tries to turn off a lamp. scan. <laughs> <SNL's- laughs> <laughs> Liza, we gotta go. We're gonna miss the show, Liza. Okay, oh, let me John just lamp. let me just turn off the lamp. There's a little button. Oh, it's a button. Oh my <laughs> let goodness. me try one. Boom. Two. Boom. <laughs> Three times. <laughs> oh my goodness! I, <laughs> I just I was thinking about that the whole time.
0: If anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, look up Saturday Night Live. Liza, Liza Minnelli, Minnelli tries to turn off to turn a lamp. Off a lamp. <laughs> it's Kristen uh, Kristen Wig as Liza Minnelli, and it is it's hysterical. It's well, just one of the greatest things i ever done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I went and watched it after after the movie ended. I was oh, like, you I have to it. watch this to, you to just laugh and lighten my spirits but i'm sorry i had i had to bring that up yeah no no worries at all that i'm glad you did
0: it's so good all right well um yeah we should talk about this movie a little bit um i hardly even know where to start
1: <laughs> <laughs> there, uh, so much happens in this movie i mean Mm -hmm. i i do not envy you right now i do not know how i would break down this discussion so uh, yeah i'm here for the ride
0: (laughs) thank you i will say it was really interesting so this is my second time watching the movie um and it was interesting like you said um watching it a second time because the first time um things played for me you know certain things would happen and it would be it was basically a reveal or a twist you know like the the reveal that uh, Brian and Max had been sleeping together, you know, they they first seed in the idea that Brian is gay. um, Then later he and Sally start sleeping together. And so my thought was, oh, I guess he's not. But then the reveal, oh, no, he's actually bisexual or there's something else going on here. Um, It was just I was not expecting that, especially in a movie from the early 1970s. And I think there's, you know, if you're when you're seeing it, for the second time, it's probably a little bit more obvious in retrospect, but it just was something that I was a little bit, you know, I wasn't anticipating and it was such an interesting wrinkle and development on his character. And then likewise, I, oh, go no, I, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, I also love how they do that reveal mm-hmm. of how, of how Sally kind of says it as a, as a way to hurt him almost of like, mm-hmm. well, we've been sleeping together. And then his response is me too and it it, it yeah. wasn't it wasn't a moment where like she walks in on them or he tells her in a totally separate scenario i just love how it's revealed of her being like i've been sleeping with him and then he just goes so have i it's like oh dang okay
0: yeah. all, right. <laughs> all of a sudden all not. of their interactions are given this new light and especially the fact that prior to this in um you know as the three of them are You know, they're going out to dinner together. Max Mm -hmm. is taking Sally shopping. Um, They're at his country estate partying. Um, Brian is so often kind of quiet and sullen. And your assumption, which I'm sure is part of it, is that he's kind of, he's jealous of Sally. You know, he's jealous of the Sally flirting with Max. He's jealous of the attention that Max is giving Sally. But with that reveal, you realize that there's actually more to it going on, that there's some part of him that he's been kind of repressing and that maybe he's jealous of... He's jealous of the attention that Sally is receiving rather than the attention that,
1: you know, that
0: she's not giving him.
1: Also that like almost three way that happened, Mm -hmm. the way that that was shot, I was like, what, what is just Mm -hmm. what is going to happen? And then it kind of dissipates because he gets sick and they lay him down on the couch. Mm -hmm. So then when it's revealed later on, that he's also been sleeping with Max. I'm like, that adds a whole other layer to what Mm -hmm. that scene was that I didn't even know was a layer that existed there. It was just crazy.
0: It's beautifully staged the way they sort of, you know, the camera's kind of at mid-level as the three of them are sort of dancing and hugging each other, and then it zooms in, and it's just the three faces taking up the screen for this really long sort of almost uncomfortable shot of them just sort of looking at each other and you can see the kind of the you know their their eyes slide from one to the other and there's this sort of measuring are we
1: doing this Uh, yeah uh, what's going on here who's gonna make the first move because i'm in are you in i don't know (laughs) Uh, i don't know (laughs) yeah
0: it's it's really beautifully directed i think
1: yeah i just thought that 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 like you said that reveal about um Gosh, why am I forgetting his name? Uh, ba- ba- Brian. Brian. No. Oh, Brian. Max? Oh, yeah, it is Brian. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, th- that reveal about Brian's character was definitely. It-, it added something that again, I feel like if I watch this a second time, it's going to give me a different a different perspective on things. Like it sounds like it did for you watching it a second mm-hmm. time. Yeah. yeah,
0: I think it's it's seated in more, or I could see the way it was seated in earlier on. Watching it a second time, I thought, "Oh, this is actually yeah. You can see where this is headed earlier than I was
1: what I anticipated the first time through." I mean, I felt like that, that's why when, when I say I was trying to figure out the relationships between people, it was very complicated for me because I felt like it was established that he was not into women, but mm-hmm. then he gets with with Sally, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Okay, so I guess I'd misinterpreted that wrong." And then we find out that he's been sleeping with Max. I'm like, oh, okay. It's, it's mm-hmm. both. He's, he's bisexual. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, he's either bisexual
0: <laughs> or he's gay and Sally sexual. <laughs> either yeah. way.
1: I, mm-hmm. I, I think it's the latter. I think he's gay and Sally sexual, but we don't know this. Does it matter yeah. either way? No, but yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. we can, we can talk <laughs> about it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. The other thing that for me, um, Again, you know, watching it again, it's very obvious in retrospect, but I think I did not realize the first time I was watching what it was doing is that um, the slow, the way that it charts the slow rise of Nazism. And so it kind of, you know, things would be happening here and there, um, but kind of in between the main plot, you know, you're not focused on these sort of what's going on in the wider world as, as you know, fits, fits the theme of the movie. You know, you're, you're focused just on the main characters and their plot problems and their relationship dynamics. And then all of a sudden, um, I guess it's about halfway through maybe, is that scene in the beer garden when they're driving back from staying at Max's estate. And Brian, so Brian and Max um, stop off at a beer garden to have a drink. And this boy starts singing and again i think this is really beautifully directed um it at first you know he's singing this song that sounds like this kind of oh the sort of sweet national anthem you know like a an edelweiss to use another (laughs) world war ii era musical um example and it just focuses on the boy's face but then it pans down and you see that he's wearing the uniform of the hitler youth you know with the the nazi armband on his his um his arm. And it just keeps cutting between the boy singing and the faces of all of the people at this beer garden looking at him. And at first, they're kind of blank and ambiguous. But then over time, all of a sudden, one youth, like it starts with the young people, which is fascinating, one of them stands up and starts joining in and then another one does and then adults start joining in. And all of a sudden, everyone is singing along with this Nazi Aryan propaganda song. And there's one shot that kind of looks straight out of like a Lenny Riefenstahl, like Triumph of the Will, like he's at the the forefront of this crowd of people. And it's just, it is so chilling and it is something that it really has stuck with me, um, you know, in the the years since I first saw this movie. Just the, the fact that it's happening at this outdoor, really brightly lit, beautiful, kind of idyllic pastoral environment. Uh, pastoral environment and then the like horrible nature of this propaganda song that's being performed and the way everyone is just kind of joining in it's yeah it's like it was like a shock to me the first time i saw it i did not realize that that's where that scene was going and then it sets the tone for the rest of the film yeah i don't know what were your thoughts on i guess that sort of side not side plot because it's kind of like a huge huge part of the movie but um the way that that's depicted or or that scene in particular
1: i I found that scene to be incredibly upsetting um like i i I almost had to fast forward through it i just mm-hmm. i think um hot take <laughs> World War Two and the Holocaust was a terrible thing. That I know a lot of people don't really going agree. out on a limb there. Yeah. Um, no. I, in all seriousness, yeah. though, um, that that particular part of humanity that has existed, um, and hopefully, may we never forget. Um, uh, it just it's horrifying, and I think I really struggle watching children participate mm-hmm. um, because they are kids who don't even know what they're doing, but they've been brainwashed. And I think I think that that moment or that scene had, a, had a, an extra gut punch for me because it was being sung by a child. Mm-hmm. I think if it was a 40-year-old man or a 40-year-old woman, it would have... I mean, it still would have obviously not been an enjoyable thing to watch, but the fact that it was such a young person singing that and then seeing how they are getting other people to join in. And I'm like, aren't you guys supposed to know better? <laughs> Why are you yeah. you're, like, you're an adult. What, what's wrong with you?
0: Yeah. Um, the, and... the, the sort of dreadful irony of that song, the song is called Tomorrow Belongs to Me. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's from the perspective of a child's being mm-hmm. like, you know, we will win the day, you know, the, the future belongs to me, but it is from the perspective of, yeah, the Hitler youth saying, you know, we're going, we're the future. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so chilling and
1: horrifying. Yeah. So I found I found that sequence to be um, upsetting. But like you said, I think that the I feel like a lot of this movie either takes place indoors or at night. And so the moments in this movie, which is, again, like as my I want to go back to my film nerd brain from college. Mm, please be like. Please. Well, I'm not saying I can do this right now, but I, I want to go back and watch the movie again and break down. What are the scenes in which we're outside? What are the scenes when we're outside during the day, when we see these bright colors, what you like, I want to tie all of that together, but I couldn't do it on the first watch. Um, but I think that there is something to be said for the fact that this is lit very differently from a lot of the other sequences. And I would like to compare it to the other ones that are lit in a similar way. Um, but yeah, as far as the as far as the kind of Nazi plot in general that happens throughout this movie, I found it to be very interesting in the way that it was handled. Um, because I think a lot of times movies that take place during this time period, especially in frickin' Germany, <laughs> um, they can be very, very focused on um Nazism in and of itself. But I thought that this was interesting seeing life just normal life happen people falling in love people getting their hearts broken people Mm -hmm. trying to accomplish dreams people you know trying to just make ends meet just seeing normal life things happen and then just getting these little sprinklings here and there of nazism and then as time goes on getting more and more of that until at the end obviously when our last the last thing that we see is very strongly talk like giving this message of like you know, Nazism mm-hmm. is, is yeah. here to stay. Like while you weren't
0: paying attention, this is what has been happening.
1: Right. And so I found that to be just really well really well done. And I thought I, I feel like I've seen that type of thing done before, but not necessarily from the perspective of well, I was gonna say from Germans, but I guess Brian and Sally aren't German. But um right. and yeah, also the, the Max outsiders looking in. And also Max and what's her face are both Jew jews so maybe or we didn't necessarily Fritz. see it
0: from this natalia yeah
1: yeah from the perspective of of germans but right. um
0: i mean i guess the only like of the main characters who have you know plot lines max is the only character who's not uh who is german and who and who is not jewish and his attitude is very much like i think he says to early on he says to brian something like you know, oh, they're just, like, idiots, but, you know, they're helpful because they can put down the communists. And, like, once that's done, then, like, they'll be easy to control. We don't need to worry about them. Mm -hmm. And obviously he's that's proven so wrong.
1: Yeah. So I just – I thought that it was really interesting how – and I don't know if this can be accredited to Bob Fosse and his direction and and how they chose to edit it together or whether it's just inherently like this, the way that it's written, and it's the same thing in the Broadway show. I don't Mm -hmm. know but i liked how it kind of juggled those two things and how the the ratio of w- how much time was dedicated to one versus the other kind of flipped as mm-hmm. time went on and um i feel like in the beginning there's so much there's so much positivity and you see that in Sally's character of like she's a dreamer and Brian has come here because he wants to teach english and he wants to stay here and all this stuff and by the end it's more so like I am not going to bring new life into this world and I'm going to go back to where I came from and I'm going to go back to, I feel like at least in my opinion, Mm -hmm. and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this Geneva, Yeah, but in my opinion, I feel like by the end, Sally gets to this point where she feels like I'm never going to accomplish this dream, but I don't know what else to do with my life and I don't want to be a mom. So I'm just going back because Mm -hmm. this is all I know how to do. And so I feel like the movie starts out with so much like vibrance and mm-hmm. and excitement about life, and by the end it's kind of a lot more. I feel like hopeless is a little bit too extreme, but it's a lot more of just we're accepting the reality of what life is, and and something and life can't always be full of joy, and, and there's something. I don't know, like bad around the corner and we just have to brace for what's coming and deal with it. However we deal with it, whether that's, you know, Sally's character, how she approaches that or Brian's character or in the grander scheme of things in terms of, in terms of Nazism in a country, you know? Um, Yeah. I mean, this movie is just so, Mm -hmm. it's so good. (laughs) It's so good. (laughs) There's so much here. Like there's Mm -hmm. so much to break down and I'm not even talking about, the cinematography and the costume design Mm -hmm. and the I'm not talking about any of that and I'm still like oh my god there's just good grief yeah good grief
0: yeah yeah oh my goodness you just made so many great points and I want to like follow up with them individually please Um, do I want to hear your thoughts I mean uh, like I mean I guess just to start with um I, I, I was gonna ask what your thoughts were on Sally's Um, not just her character, but sort of her character arc and the decision that she makes in the end to stay in Germany. Because, um, I mean, like you, I feel like there is this sort of kind of hopelessness to it at the end. Um, You know, it's her... I I don't think that she necessarily was wrong in believing that she and Brian would never work out ultimately. But uh, there is the sadness at the end that I think is... I think the takeaway for me, my interpretation, is she is never going to make it. She is never going to be a great actress. You know, if she stays in Germany, eventually she will have to leave or very potentially be killed. Um, Nothing good is going to happen for her if she stays there. But she cannot give up on her dream. She cannot give up on the hope of being an actress, even if, you know, she probably knows that it's never going to happen. And I think that's very profound to a certain extent about human nature and like how you know how much we need those dreams how much we need hopes but then at the same time how um how much they can also be a a a hindrance or um a, a method of delusion I guess in a certain sense yeah there is that just profound sadness to her story you know someone who is so vibrant and so talented like I've I've actually heard the criticism of this movie which I watching it was almost kind of inclined to agree with in a certain sense that like it might hurt the movie to a a slight bit that Liza Minnelli is so obviously talented when Sally Bowles (laughs) like (laughs) is maybe not supposed to be talented (laughs) or at least you're not really supposed to think that she has it to make it you're like well if a producer came into the Kit Kat club like obviously they would sign her right away (laughs) you know so um i would sign joel gray oh my goodness absolutely yeah, yeah. well deserved oscar oscar win for joel gray which we should talk for about. sure but um yeah anyway i sorry i'm just sort of rambling but um yeah there is that beautiful beautiful just sadness and despair i think to to her story at the end and i just that shot of her in that long purple dress singing on stage about how life is a cabaret and there's all this vibrancy to her performance. She's singing the absolute hell out of that song and like she has constructed her life as a cabaret. This is the life that she has chosen and it's both a um, you know, it's both the way the place that she feels most alive, the way that she's able to express herself, the thing that brings her kind of meaning and dream the the things that brings her hope in life but it is also something that kind of encloses her um to a certain extent. So yeah, I mean as I said before, I think Bob Fos- I really love what Bob Fosse is able to bring out of this material in terms of the kind of ambil- ambivalence about the role of entertainment and performance in the lives of people. How it can bring yeah. good
1: things but also bad things. Speaking of bringing good things and also bad things. I I found another thing that I really admire about movies, which is something I loved about The Banshees of Inisherin, mm. uh which is another movie that I watched recently <laughs> it came out in uh 2022. Uh but I I love when movies are able to seamlessly juggle different tones of 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 like positive emotion and negative mm. emotion but somehow make them work at the same yeah. time. Comedy and, and I tragedy. Found Yeah, and I found that this movie did that in lots of ways, but the two that I guess I'm thinking about right now are, because I just looked at my notes and and remembered I wanted to mention this, but I, I found certain moments of this movie to be very funny um like there's moments when sally is closing the door and people's faces in really funny ways or just kind of saying things and or or like that scene where uh what's the lady's name who plays the jewish like royalty or whatever Uh, natalia i think natalia when she's like talking about her sexual problems and sally's like eating it all up like she's just like oh my tell me the drama tell me everything like but she's just listening mm-hmm. she's not even saying anything she's like i don't yeah. i just want to listen to your but anyway there's lots of moments that's in funny because that... i actually
0: sorry i just i have a slightly different interpretation of sally's reaction oh, during interesting. that scene but yeah we'll talk about it in a second but keep going
1: yeah um but anyway so i found several moments in this movie to be genuinely funny but then there were also moments in this movie that were horrifying mm-hmm. like 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 nightmarish and one thing that I'm recalling is again, which is why I want to break this movie down more and find out what <laughs> does this mean and why is this here and why is it shot that way. But the sequence with um with the mud fighting in the beginning oh, when the two yes. women are mud fighting and we're cutting back and forth and and Joel Gray's like maniacally laughing and and we've mm-hmm. got these flashing lights and and red colors and people punching. I was like, this is this feels like a nightmare, mm-hmm. but I have no idea why this is here or what it's trying to say, all I know is I feel like this is a nightmare that I want to wake up from. (laughs) And, and there's several moments throughout the movie that, that were genuinely scary to me. And I just think that this movie does such a great job of juggling lots of tones that are seemingly opposite, um, but brings them onto this level playing field. And again, I can't like analyze and break down why and what and how they go together, um, but just watching them without, you know, having done that yet, I'm just like, wow, there's so much going on here, and somehow it works. I can't explain how it works because mm-hmm. I haven't made the connections yet, but it works.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I think so much of why this, um, the darker themes have such a visceral quality to them is the fact that this is a musical you know that just the the nature of the genre the nature of the form you know we're so conditioned to express expect a musical to be a you know bright happy thing um you know we're conditioned to uh, I expectancy. don't <laughs> I
1: feel like most of the musicals I've seen at this point have me weeping
0: by the end that's true well uh, we can talk to about the like the nature of musicals over the last 50 years and how they all feel like they need to be subverting the expectations of musicals from the first first 50 years but um I don't know there's something about the the musical form that is so you know it, it's either giving into the um the kind of happy escapist love will triumph. um, The good guys are going to win nature or it's consciously subverting it. And I think this does an excellent job of subverting it and of Mm -hmm. just like, oh man, turning around that sort of escapism as a good thing to escapism Mm. as a horrific thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Escapism as like an intentional evil act in a sense and like i don't want to go too far down that road um because like in general i love musicals and i think escapism serves an essential function in um in our entertainment world and in our lives but like this musical specifically is raising those themes of um the way that we can use um i guess just pleasure and hedonism and, um, yeah, escapism, I guess, not to keep using that word, but as as an intentional way to disengage from the world and the damaging effects that that could have.
1: Well, it's interesting because I found myself at the beginning of this movie – I just kept thinking, man, I would love to go to one of these shows. This, <laughs> this like just looks like so much fun. Uh-huh. And then by the end I was thinking, um I actually don't think I want to go to one of these shows. I don't think I want to go anymore. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean it. Yeah, it looks like it's a it's a great time like if you're if it's pre the rise of Nazis I'm like I'm sure you go out and you have right. an absolute blast. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And speaking of of which uh in terms of the cabaret show itself cuz mm-hmm. I feel like we haven't talked too much about like the cabaret aspects of this movie so far but um I just think that um I think the choreography I mean it's Bob Fosse so Right duh but i think the choreography is just so good especially <laughs> especially in that um i think it's the 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 first the first number that we see that has sally in it mm-hmm. the one where they're all on the chairs yes and there's that these is an moments. absolutely
0: iconic sorry i just have to like mini like that is such an iconic number i i prior to watching the movie i had watched it on youtube so many times just because this number is so magnetic and fascinating to watch it's called mine hair i think um and yeah it's just the just the elements of like a woman in a black sort of suit and tights and a chair like that's all you need and then you're (laughs) you're in you know you know exactly what it's referencing it is yeah iconic anyway sorry continue
1: yeah i i mean i agree with you um but i the thing i mean i i was gonna say the thing that i love about it I, i love everything about it but the thing that really called my attention was there's these moments there's these beats in the number where it's just like, and when that happens, they all rotate their feet at the same time, or they all clap, you know, like put, beat their hands on their legs at the same time. Or I just, I don't know. I just loved those moments when it was like, we're all doing the same thing at the same time for these few beats. And also just, just the differences in the singing tone, how we're singing really high and then we're dropping low. And then we're Mm singing. I was like, ah, I just, I loved that number. That's honestly probably my favorite number in the whole show. I thought it was really great. Or er, show, movie. Yeah. Um, yeah I yeah. guess originally show, but. Um, right. Of all the Kit Kat Club numbers. Yeah. Yeah. It was just such a way to to introduce us to to the cabaret and also the cabaret that Sally is a part of. Because we yeah. see cabaret numbers before that but this is the first one that she's in mm-hmm. and so it really just establishes her yeah. and her act as, yeah Sally this is as the one performer. that people this is the one that people come to see you mm-hmm. know the rest of it is just it, it sets the tone and it creates the environment but people come to see this mm-hmm. you know I, I loved it
0: yeah yeah Sally's talent her her personality as a performer Um especially considering I believe i could be misremembering this but i think you know there's the the movie opens and we get the opening scene that's kind of welcoming us to the cabaret we have this whole number called Willkommen. um yeah like welcome to the cabaret i think this is the first kind of cabaret number that we see after that like a few scenes I think later so too uh, yeah but when in that opening number Willkommen, there's a part where the mc is introducing all of the um the different members of the cabaret, all the different performers. And I didn't even pick up on this the first time, but he introduces Sally. The camera is not focused on Sally at all. She's kind of just off to the side, like semi in the background. And it's so quick. And I just thought that was really fascinating that it's it's focusing, that opening number is completely just focusing on the MC and then introducing the cabaret as a whole. And we don't get any sort of visual indication that Sally is going to be the person that we're following until the next scene when Brian goes to the boarding house and meets her. And Mm -hmm. so this really is the first time that, that mine hair number, that really is the first time that we see, oh, Sally is like, she's got something special, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's like a special person to be following. And like, I feel like we also don't get too much of an indication about her status within the club, too, or like her hmm. status within the broader, um, you know, the the audience who's going to the Kit Kat club because we watch and we're like, oh, obviously, she's the star. Like, you know, we're going to <laughs> we're watching this movie to see her. But there's never any like note of like, oh, yeah, she's the headliner of this club. You know, it's just she's a performer within this club. You know, there's no... And and so with with that, we also don't have that sense of will she ever make it as a as a film star? Like pro- producers apparently occasionally come, but we don't know if they're necessarily coming to see her specifically. And so it just is, you know, their loss. Yeah. <laughs> I'd absolutely. sign her in a
1: second. <laughs> Who's that but. girl over there? I want her on my. <laughs> yeah, bring her to
0: my table. Let bring me her um, to my Use my little uh, table phone to uh, call her over here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Love those little table phones that they have. So
1: you mentioned, um you mm-hmm. mentioned Sally's kind of black. I almost can't even call it a jumpsuit because it has shorts. But, yeah, but it's her, like it's almost it, like a leotard. Type it's thing. A little, it's like
0: because I this is watching it this time. Um, I think I was maybe like a high, higher resolution <laughs> file than the first time I watched As it. As or... opposed to the VHS you watched <laughs> it on know. before? I was just like, maybe it's because I've seen that number so many times on YouTube where the resolution's not great. And so uh, this time yeah. actually watching it on a streaming file, I was like, oh, I can actually make out what she's wearing. So she's wearing these sort of um, like black tap pants that are like covered in sequins or sparkles. And they're almost slight, they're black, but they're slightly blue. But then she's wearing this vest like a man's tuxedo vest on top with nothing underneath and that's her outfit and then she's wearing her stockings
1: yeah I I I just was gonna say I I literally want to wear every single one of Sally's outfits (laughs) in this movie like I Mm -hmm. legitimately I I legitimately want to wear every single one of them they're all Mm -hmm. so great except for maybe the purple dress that she has towards the end um Mm. but Especially this opening, I was like, dang, that's a knockout outfit. I want to wear that. That's Mm -hmm. amazing. And it's a great, like, you know, you just put on some black
0: shorts and stockings and, like, a black vest with nothing underneath and instantly Mm -hmm. you're selling both. Like, it's a very easy Halloween costume you could throw together.
1: I mean, you'd have to do the makeup, too. but Oh, that's true. Yeah. Which... Iconic. I feel like it looks deceptively easy, but I feel like it's very Mm -hmm. difficult to do. Like, how do you even get those eyelashes yeah, to stay you did on your massive, face. Yeah, you need some
0: massive, massive <laughs> fake eyelashes. My gosh, it's crazy. Yeah, very sort of twiggy 1960s look in that.
1: Yeah. What did you think of, uh, mm-hmm. I forget who it was. I think it was Max. What did you think of his bleach blonde freaking mustache? I He first came in and I was like, is that a mistake? Is that a milk mustache? And they just forgot to wipe it off. And then And then they finally did a close-up shot of him. And I was like, nope. That's, that's real. Yeah. I, uh, not going to judge
0: anyone for their hair choices, but blonde men with like short mustaches that are not substantial enough that you're, you can look at it and instantly say that's a mustache, like maybe
1: reconsider. I feel like any, any hair color though, because it was just this weird pencil it's like a like a well, it was small like, It was
0: like it was a little larger than a pencil but it was like halfway between a p- pencil and a handlebar. Like it was Ugh. in this weird middle ground that
1: yeah, it did not it was not It was great. weird. I didn't like it. Yeah. Sorry, fictional character of Max, your mustache <laughs> is freaking weird, but whatever.
0: Yeah, he's like I'm just too wealthy to have to worry about like making my mustache commit to one look or another.
1: And kind of going on a little tangent but related to Max, one thing that I loved about this movie I I just love it I love it when I see characters repeat things mm-hmm. because I feel like it gives me an idea of just like who they are as a person and how often do they say this and did I- and we kind of discuss that in straight out of Compton when uh Paul Giamatti's character like repeated the same line over and over oh yeah and and I found that here again too, because sally when she when she first meets Brian, she has this line of like you don't happen to have a cigarette, do you? I'm desperate. And she goes down this line. <laughs> and then the first time she sees Max, she says the mm-hmm. same exact thing. And I'm just like, is this her line that yeah, she uses? to it's her to flirting kind of line. Get man into her, like, into her zone. And I was like, this is so, it just gives me a peek, more of a peek into who she is before we got to know her in this movie, you know? Mm-hmm. um, Gosh, I feel like if we're already at 56 minutes, but I feel like we... Or I could spend this whole podcast just talking about her character and and things that I think aspects of her character, mm-hmm. who she was and how she came to be yeah and, I mean the oh, fact that there's she, so much
0: the fact that she is apparently the daughter of this pretty wealthy, prominent like politician ambassador and um who seems to be neglectful i mean she has this incredible speech where she talks about how he really tries to love her but he just doesn't like her very much and it's so beautifully Mm -hmm. delivered like you can see all of the um so much of where she's coming from from with that sort of you know i've been giving all given all of the privilege and wealth and opportunities in the world but i've not been loved by my parents and that's one of the reasons that i choose to live the the way that i live and have the dreams that I I have, you know, so much of her life is defined by wanting to f- be loved by people, you know, she, obviously, she, you know, she, she finds love in Brian, she finds, not love, but, you know, companionship of a certain kind with Max. Um, she wants, you know, she dreams of having the love of an audience when she hopefully becomes a, a film star you know it it's such a it's such an intensely human and understandable um desire to have
1: yeah i i think i think that's one of the reasons why i love her character so much because she's not I don't know. I find that for me a lot of times when I watch movies where women are kind of these flirty mm-hmm. whatever, they just annoy me. I'm like, yeah. "Oh my gosh, can you st- can you just stop? <laughs> you're really annoying." But I feel like I feel like with Sally, there was so much of of No, I I can I can relate to this. I, I might not be living out this desire for affirmation in the same way, but I totally understand where you're coming from and I understand I guess, like, the decisions that she's making feel, feel, like, feel human to me. Mm -hmm. I feel like these are, like you were saying, natural responses or natural emotional desires that people have. And because it was rooted in kind of natural human emotion, I was able to connect with her more and not just be like, shut up, stop, (laughs) stop flirting with everyone. You're annoying. Like, don't you have enough attention? You already know you're the coolest person in every room. So just Mm -hmm. stop you know but i could I could see I could see the cracks in the facade. I could see how i mean you're saying that she's craving love i don't I don't think she's craving love. I think she wants affirmation mm-hmm. um because she gets love from Brian, but then she learns that's not ultimately what I want like i like mm-hmm. you said before, I could be fine with this for a little bit, but in the long run, I'm just gonna you know i I can't, this is not where I'm able to stay. Yeah. And so I think that she wants more of the, just affirmation from as many people as she can get. And a lot of times because of her, because of her character and, and who she is and where she works and, and her emotional um, temperance and all that stuff, it happens to be men a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find myself when this movie ended, I found myself wondering again, cause I was so, I was so I loved this this character of Sally so much and I found myself thinking at the end where does Sally go from here because she's going to age out of being this beautiful mm-hmm. cabaret star you know she's not going to be able to do this forever mm-hmm. so you know in 15 years or 20 years or ho- I don't know how old she is. it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> yeah, matter say, but like say early 20s I don't know yeah like in the future when she can't do freaking splits on a chair anymore, because <laughs> it all it comes for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but when she can't do that anymore, where does she go? You know. Mm-hmm. And I don't see her settling down and and being a mom with kids. But what does that mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, arguably we could say she's not even going to live that long because of <laughs> because of the Holocaust. But but theoretically, if she was yeah. going to continue on, like I just was so invested in her as a character, I was like, ah, yeah. I want to continue going on this journey with you. Like, I I want to see, I want to see where you go from here. Yeah. Uh,
0: Make a sequel. Sally Bowles. (laughs) No,
1: don't do that. It'll ruin it. Don't do that. I like the ambiguity. obviously you couldn't get Liza Minnelli, so. Oh, that'd be cool. Like Liza, Sally now in her 70s. (laughs) Like, what is she doing now? Um, Yeah. But speaking of, I guess this is like the last, this is the last note I have Mm -hmm. regarding Sally, but Um, And it's it's just a brief one, but I'm definitely going to steal that idea of, like, standing by a really loud train and screaming as it goes by. (laughs) I just was thinking that's a brilliant, brilliant idea. Uh Because I've had friends tell me before, they say, Tatum, you know, have you ever just... Gone somewhere and screamed. It's really therapeutic. I'm like, guys, I live in Chicago. There is nowhere to go. <laughs> like, there is no open space yeah. where, like, you know, unless I, I suppose I could drive three hours and go to a cornfield and pull over on the side of the road, but that's mm-hmm. a big time commitment just for a little scream. Yeah. So, <laughs> no,
0: this is something I've legitimately thought about and been like, I would love to do this, but literally, where could you go? Because I would always be afraid that wherever I was, even if yeah. I thought I was alone, someone would hear and think I was dying. Yep. <laughs> no, so yep. in um, in college, actually, um, there was a really great tradition <laughs> that we had, where there was a particular hall that had a courtyard, and the idea was that we called it we called it the Holder Howl because it was Holder Hall, and the idea is that on the at midnight on the day that papers are due. Everyone would gather in Holder, and at exactly midnight, would just scream their lungs out. Wow! And it was the best. That sounds and I think it's something that we should start incorporating into our lives because let's, let's it is bring very, that into the
1: workplace. Absolutely,
0: it's very therapeutic. Wow! I mean, then five minutes, you know, five minutes pass, and everyone's like, "All right, well, I got to go back to work now." But it is really <laughs> nice to just get out of your room where you've been working for the past. 12 hours and go and scream somewhere
1: i feel like screaming is one thing but then screaming in the company of other people Mm -hmm. who are also screaming takes it to a whole other level yeah that
0: is the thing is everyone's screaming so you don't feel self-conscious and you're not worried yeah and you're not worried that like again someone's gonna overhear and be like what's happening is someone getting attacked like should i call the police because it's this is like an accepted thing
1: it's it reminds me of that scene in Midsommar where, uh, I think I've shown this to you before, mm-hmm. Midsommar is not its not necessarily my favorite movie in the world. Uh, there's parts of it that I like, parts of it that I'm not into, mm-hmm. but there is one scene in particular that I've oh. watched a million times, and those of you who have seen it probably know what I'm talking about, but it's the scene when Florence Pugh's character finally has her breakdown after like being in this cult zone for a really long time and she breaks down in this room and she is basically having like a panic attack and this group of women who are part of this cult they come and surround her and they like Florence Pugh's character basically starts heaving and then her sobs are building and building and building Mm -hmm. and then the women that are all with her are like mimicking her sobs and her breaths and then all of a sudden they're all screaming and crying together and I think it's beautiful Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because it takes place in this horror movie and I think it's part of it is supposed to feel maybe I don't know what this says about me but I think it's maybe supposed to be slightly horrifying and uncomfortable (laughs) but for me I'm like this is one of the most beautiful things I've (laughs) ever seen
0: (laughs) but yeah you showed me I have not seen Midsommar but you've showed me this clip and it just calls to mind like what I've heard from friends who've given birth naturally, and how, like being in a room with the presence of like, you know, a midwife or a doula and mm-hmm. female, you know, sister, sister-in-law, mother, grandmother, like just being in the presence of all of these women who are kind of helping you through that process mm-hmm. can be very sort of therapeutic in a certain way, mm-hmm. even through the pain, which, as someone who has not given birth, I struggle to understand that and (laughs) I'm like just give me all the drugs I I don't I'm happy not having that experience but like yeah it 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 is sounds like a really interesting and kind of um, I guess primal would be a good word for it like in the sense that it's just this innate sort of deep deep human feeling and you know that sense of sort of community and expressing something that is so Yeah. Deep within the human psyche. I don't know. I'm just sort of rambling, but that's a really good scene uh, that you showed me.
1: Yeah. My sister's a doula, so shout out to all the doulas out there. Yeah. Thank you for Um, your service. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Um, Yeah.
0: I just, uh, on that scene, I just have to put in... Uh, A note to the screaming
1: by the train scene. Yes.
0: I just love the chemistry between the two of them. Like I I think um, Liza Minnelli and Michael York, which shout out to Michael York, by the way, in this movie, who I think, you know, he has a less showy role because he is more of the stiff upper lip character. Um, So I can see why he did not receive an an actor acting nomination just because... um, you know, it, it sort of, it sticks with you less than, you know, Liza Minnelli or Joel Gray, you know, they have the more showy roles. But I think he really, really does a great job with what he has. I think he, he acts so perfectly as kind of a grounding point and a counterpoint to the, the more showy elements of the, the movie. Um, so shout out to him. But anyway, I think the two of them have really sweet chemistry together when they're, things are going well for them and just a little interaction where he's like he's all british and stiff upper lip and she's like trying to get him to scream and he's like no no i can't no i can't
1: okay i'll do we're it we're british we don't do that does he say something along those lines yeah, he like, does. i'm british i can't do that i
0: can't yeah like i know i physically can't yeah it's yep. very cute
1: yeah so Geneva, I don't know, I don't know if there's anything else specific that you want to talk about, because for me... Yeah, I guess the, I the just... two
0: other things I wanted to bring up, well, I first, I, I just wanted to also, say... Also, if you yeah.
1: want to go on your tangent at any point about oh, yeah. like, the history of <laughs> well, whatever... Well, that's what I also
0: wanted to do. Okay. I guess just in terms of the plot, we haven't really spoken too much about the Fritz and Natalia um, subplot, and I mean, it's not a huge subplot, we've touched on it a little bit already, but... Um, I had completely forgotten about it from the first time I watched it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, it does kind of just abruptly end. It's yeah. Like, oh, they're married now. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the second time through, I thought, actually, I really like this. Like, it's not, again, you know, it is more, a little more grounded, a little more subdued. Fritz and Natalia are both kind of, you know, they're less sort of, um, they're not super big characters, particularly Natalia, um, they are a bit more reserved and realistic in a certain way. But I think that they do serve a really important counterpoint to the characters in the fact that they represent the real human impact of what is going on behind the scenes. Um, And so when they're getting married at the end, you know, it's like on the one hand, Oh, happy ending. The two people who love each other get to be together, but you're also watching it and you're like, Oh no, these two are potentially doomed. Like, At the very least, hopefully they will be able to flee Germany before anything happens and they will have to completely restart their lives with nothing somewhere else. Or if they're not able to, I mean, Fritz is essentially risking his life and potentially signing his own doom by um, admitting his heritage in order to be with Natalia. Like, it is very, it's beautiful, but it's also just so sad and and there's so much uncertainty to the end so yeah I I really like them and I I mentioned before I had a slightly different interpretation of the Sally and Natalia scene I think that's just yeah because tell me
1: what it is because for me I was just like she, she loves <laughs> she's this. eating up the drama <laughs> yeah
0: for me what I read it more as and maybe this is not like I think you can probably read both of these things at the same time. No, one of them is definitely right (laughs) and the other one is definitely wrong. (laughs) I was reading Sally's reaction as being kind of at a loss for what to do and being completely unable to cope with the fact that there is this woman in front of her who was impacted by the advice that Sally had just kind of like, you know, tossed off, like assuming that all people are kind of like her, that she would just appreciate a man who's more like forceful and is like <laughs> pouncing i guess is the word they use um it seems like it was mutual the the sex that they had <laughs> Mut- but like mutual <laughs> pouncing <laughs> like it was not <laughs> it, it caused a lot of confusion for natalia and hurt and i i think that sally sort of realizes i read it as sally kind of realizing that like she there's this person who is very different than her and is feeling very different things and she doesn't know how to react or how to cope with it and she I think to a certain extent Sally really struggles to deal with negative emotions at all like Natalia starts crying and Sally's like I I'm terrible when people cry like I don't know what to do when people cry which I think is very consistent with Sally's character and so yeah like I think part of it like especially at the beginning is her being like oh yeah tell me all the drama tell me all the deets but I think there's also this like oh oh maybe there's like there's more happening here than I thought at first and I really don't know what to do
1: well I I would agree with you I think that there is a transition I think at least from my opinion or from my perspective I see her in the beginning being like yes tell me. tell me everything <laughs> but then yeah. as she starts to see how genuinely upset Mm-hmm. Um, Natalia is then you see her being like oh shit oh shit yeah. wait 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 what I don't know how to respond to this I don't know what to do <laughs> and then when Natalia finally starts crying that's when she gets up and she's like and then she sits down next to her and essentially tells her I don't I don't know what to do either so yeah <laughs> um, so I, I, I yeah. definitely think that there's a transition there but I think the initial just excitement of loving the tea (laughs) is is quite funny yeah yeah and also very natural like I know lots of people (laughs) including myself who like Mm -hmm. like yeah I mean yeah anyway
0: yeah very Um, greased tell me more tell me more yeah yeah
1: um
0: so the only other thing that I really wanted to touch on anyway was just my little nerdy corner about the history of the movie musical and just some like general thoughts I have and I shouldn't be like framing this as if i'm gonna give a like
1: All <laughs> right, class, just take like, out your notebooks no. <laughs> and uh you'll be quizzed you'll be quizzed next tuesday
0: yeah th- this is not like researched and cited. this is just sort of like general knowledge that i have um if anyone is interested i might be wrong on a couple points but i don't know i i find it fascinating so anyway um yeah so i mentioned this was the second film that was directed by bob fossey um at the time, you know, he was, he had a, he'd been a, a renowned Broadway director and choreographer for many years. Um, the His first film was Sweet Charity, and that film was not a success. Hey, Big Spender! <laughs> da, 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 yes, that's Sweet Charity.
1: <laughs> the um, you walked in the joint. <laughs> I really love that song a lot.
0: It's, yes, if you've never seen Sweet Charity, I... I'm not crazy about the movie overall, but the musical numbers are really, and it's particularly Big Spender and Rich Man's Fug in particular are, yeah, just incredible. But anyway, um, yeah, that film was a failure. So the, the studio was kind of reluctant to hire Fosse, but they did and turned out to be a great decision, obviously. So to give some context, within the early 1970s, which is when Cabaret was being made, the movie musical was basically dead. Um, in the late 1960s, it had been killed off by some really expensive bombs. Um, Dr. Doolittle, Camelot, Hello, Dolly! in 1969 in particular. Um, those films were kind of really bound to the past. They had these really colorful, kind of often stage-bound artificial settings and um, the plots could be kind of ridiculous. Um, It was very much a sort of, you know, conventional 1950s type morality in certain cases. Um, So, you know, they're they're more similar to movies of the past, like, you know, Summer Stock, you know, the bandwagon, things that were absolute classics of the the musical genre, but were not really relevant to that sort of late 60s um, social, you know, where the uh, society was at the time. So New Hollywood was on the rise at the time. Musicals like those were bombing and studios were you know finally starting to move away from them. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about this there's a really great book called Roadshow the Fall of the Film Musicals in the 1960s by Matthew Kennedy. So New Hollywood is on the rise. Um, The studio system is basically collapsed. Movies like Bonnie and Clyde, Midnight Cowboy, The French Connection, or redefining what movies can look like and who the protagonists could be. So this is the context that Bob Fosse is directing this film. Um, Fosse, along with his wife and collaborator, Gwen Verdon, had developed a highly innovative directorial style, and it matched the, the darkness and the chaos of the era really, really well. So unlike, as we've talked a little bit, Um, already unlike most of the classic fantasy musicals of the 1940s and 50s um, in which characters in the middle of a scene could just burst into song and that was assumed you know this is happening you know this is a fantasy We're, we're meant to assume that this is basically the characters speaking to each other or speaking their inner monologue in cabaret all the musical numbers are diegetic which means they exist within the world of the film and so it is separate from the storylines of Sally, Brian, Max, Fritz, Natalia, etc. So the musical numbers in the Kit Kat Club are filmed in a very claustrophobic manner. They're confined to the small and smoky cabaret stage. The performance, the performers all have this garish makeup. Um, there are these highly sexualized comedic routines. And the effect of this is that it provides this sort of escape from the violence and poverty of the world outside but that is intentionally hollow um side note a really great essay which i um on this is by raymond knapp called getting real stage musical versus filmic realism in film adaptation from camelot to cabaret um he talks a lot about this sort of transition so bob fossey building on uh some of the The techniques and styles that he'd shown in Sweet Charity, he uses the numbers in the Kit Kat Club to basically revolutionize or at least kind of change tack in the way that dance is filmed on screen. So, in the musicals of Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly, uh, what they're doing is they're using these long takes and these gliding camera movements to showcase the performer and the movements of the performer. So, the camera is moving but it's it's moving in tandem and the idea is to show off what the performer the performer's whole body and what they're doing by contrast Fosse intersperses full-length shots of the performer with lots of quick takes of isolated body parts faces hands or legs um, or he's cutting between the visual of the performer with a montage of events that are happening outside of the club and in many ways this is kind of anticipating the visual language of the modern day music video for that, I would suggest a really, really great book called Dance Me a Song by Beth Guiné. Um She talks about the, um, the directorial style of Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly and George Balanchine. Fascinating book if you're interested in this. Anyway, um, so the frequent cuts that Fosse uses allow the editing to create a visual rhythm that complements the rhythm of the music itself. And so that really helps to create the chaotic, kind of intense, nightmarish quality of many of the cabaret numbers that we discussed. So this film, there's just this general feeling of hopelessness and cynicism that pervades it, um, both in the real life numbers and then also in the way that that contrasts but complements the, the musical numbers. And this suits, suits the setting of the story really well, because this is, you know, Germany of the 1930s. It's a nation that's about to be plunged into this decade of absolute madness, But it also spoke to the relevance of the audiences of the time that the movie was coming out. You know, this late 1960s, early 70s era, all these social concerns that are emerging, all of this upheaval that's happening. It's just it's so relevant for the time. Um, It's this way of recreating what a musical looks like for an era that is extremely different than the era when musicals were at their height previously, which is that kind of 1940s, 1950s, early 60s. So anyway, that's my little nerdy corner about (laughs) what I find fascinating about this movie from the perspective of the history of musicals. Nice. (laughs) All right, so I guess we should probably start wrapping this up. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about this movie before we get into the um, legacy and awards?
1: the last thing I just wanted to say, which we don't necessarily have to talk about, but I just thought that it was really um, just to use a word you used earlier in the podcast, I thought it was really chilling that uh during the credits there's no sound at all. Cause this movie is very loud, there's a lot of music and the opening is you you have the same thing you're looking at visually in terms of the reflection in some sort of mirror like warped mirror type of thing. But the beginning it's so loud and energetic. Mm-hmm. And then at the end you're looking at the same thing almost but it's completely silent mm, and I just yes. thought that that it's like if you didn't if you weren't being left with a negative feeling or, or just like a feeling of of dread I guess yeah yeah that's such a good you're definitely it. feeling it now <laughs> <laughs> by the time the credits uh-huh. come around um and I just found that to be a very um just a very a very what's the word I'm looking for I don't know just like a very um specific choice that they made that created Mm -hmm. um a very specific feeling and I thought yeah I just thought it was a very brilliant choice so
0: yeah yeah no that's that's such a good point and I have to say too you know going along with what I said earlier about how I I really really love Bob Fosse the the movies that Bobby Fosse has directed um I cannot wait for you
1: to watch all that jazz and I
0: cannot wait to rewatch all that jazz
1: um yeah, and can I also just put out there, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. Mm. Uh, if anyone's interested in Bob Fosse, there's an excellent uh, FX show, Ooh, limited yes. series that came out a few years ago called Fosse Verdon, starring uh, Sam Rockwell and the brilliant Michelle Williams. Mm. Uh, it's it's very, very, very well done. It's a limited series, so it's easy to uh, watch quickly. Uh, but yeah, it, it tells a lot about Bob Fosse and kind of his... His growth in in fame and his personal life with his partner, um, and yeah, it's just it's. I would highly recommend it. So yeah, if you're interested in all on Bob Fossey, watch. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just about Bob Fosse; it's also about yeah. Anyway, yeah. Fosse Verdon putting a FX spotlight back series. on
0: Gwen Verdon, who's often forgotten today, but who was so exactly influential and essential to.
1: His and she style. she drove a lot of his creative mm-hmm. projects, but yeah. she never got the credit for it. Yeah. Because he also was an asshole and never really gave her the credit yeah. for it. Well, and I think, so.
0: too, I mean, I, I could be a little bit wrong about the timeline about this, but I believe when they first met and began collaborating together, she was the star. You know, she was the, the famous one, the Broadway star. And his star eventually came to eclipse hers. And uh, I'm sure he was the asshole who never gave her credit. And she's kind of forgotten in some circles today you know she's not the household name that he is but um yeah she deserves every bit of credit alongside him for the things that were they were able to pioneer together um yeah and also sorry just speaking of Sweet Charity if you've never seen it before go highly recommend looking up uh Sweet Charity Gwen Verdon because there's a performance from I think the Tonys where she does um What's that song that she performs in the, the bedroom of the the star when she's... Oh, If They Could See Me Now. Yep. Yes. Gwen Verdon is unbelievably magnetic. Like, you cannot believe the things that she is able to do with um, with her voice and with her body. And yeah, she's an incredible performer. So anyway, thank you, yes, um, for recommending <laughs> that because that is essential content.
1: And I don't think you've seen it.
0: No, not yet. I keep meaning to. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard great things about it. Okay, Cabaret. This is the
1: second FX limited series. I'm like, you got to watch Feud. I, gotta do. Watch
0: I do. You got to watch Verdon, you know? I do, yeah. I My understanding is that Fosse Verdon is a bit maybe more historically accurate than Feud is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I do really want to watch Fosse Verdon. Anyway, yes, Cabaret Awards. So, um, can be a bit hard to get an accurate reading because for movies that are on the older side, but. Currently, Rotten Tomatoes has Cabaret at 92%, Metacritic has it at an 80%. Uh, Cabaret was a huge award success, so it was nominated for 10 Oscars in all, and it won eight. So it won Best Director for Bob Fosse, won Actress for Liza Minnelli, Supporting Actor for Joel Grey, Art Direction, Cinematography, Editing, Score, and Sound. The only categories that it lost were for best adapted screenplay and then for best picture. And fun fact, um, it, so it lost to The Godfather, you know, <laughs> when you had a little thing
1: like The Godfather. <laughs> um, Cabaret? I actually, mm-hmm? quite the, like, looking at it from a different perspective, I wasn't aware that The Godfather lost so many things right, to yeah. another. I assumed Shocking. it swept. Mm -hmm. so that's super interesting to me yeah anyway
0: yeah so fun fact cabaret holds the record for being the movie that has won the most oscars without also winning best picture um and i pulled one quote from our good friend roger ebert from his review of cabaret at the time in 1972 um just because i thought it it sums up a lot of the things that we've been talking about. So he says, "This is no ordinary musical. Part of its success comes because it doesn't fall for the old cliche that musicals have to make you happy. Instead of cheapening the movie version by lightening its load of despair, director Bob Fossey has gone right to the bleak heart of the material and stayed there well enough to win an Academy Award for Best Director. So yeah, yeah, sums it up well. All right, so, final thoughts. Anything that has kind of moved you or stuck out to you, um, I said already, and, but I'll just repeat it. The thing that really stuck with me longest after watching this movie for the first time was that sequence at the beer garden um, in which the um, first the the boy, the Hitler youth, and then the, all of the, the population start singing along to the, the Nazi propaganda song. And just the sort of gut punch of realizing, oh my gosh, while, I, while we weren't looking, things have gotten this far and we know they're only going to get worse. Um, yeah, it is such a, such a gut punch. I, that is definitely going to continue to stick with me. And I think just, just little nuances of um, Liza Minnelli's performance and um, particularly some of the shots of her when she's performing alone on the stage. Um, she sings this beautiful song called Maybe This Time. Um, after she and Brian get together for the first time. And then at the end, when she's singing Life is a Cabaret, like there's just this beautiful melancholy, hopefulness and melancholy to her performances in both cases that I think is just, yeah, really, really resonates. So what about you? What stuck out with you, to you?
1: I think for me, the thing that's really going to stick with me, which this sounds like a backward statement, but it's the <laughs> truth. Um, I think the thing that's really going to stick with me is how much I want to watch this movie again. Um, It's been a while since I finished a movie and just thought, I really want to watch this again as soon as possible. Because I feel like there's so... I mean, I keep saying it over and over again, but I feel like there's so much here and I'm only grasping at 30% of what's going on because there's so much in in mm-hmm. the cabaret itself and how that relates to everything else and the structure of the film and how it's cyclical. But I just, yeah, the thing that's going to stick with me is how much I want to watch this movie yeah. again. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm so excited I want to watch it again. Yeah, I want to break it down piece by piece yeah. and just analyze it. This movie is, it's a treasure trove, I feel like, and mm-hmm. I'm excited to, to get back to it and really dedicate more time yeah. to breaking it down. So, yeah. yeah.
0: There's so many things that I noticed on the second watch that I haven't even talked about in terms of the um the choices of which cabaret songs are like are chosen and placed. You know, mm-hmm, there's so exactly, many times yeah. that a, a plot point will happen and immediately there's a cabaret song that right. comments it on it in, in some sort of ironic way. Like the money one, um, yeah, the money one is great. Like money makes the world go round mm-hmm. I think that's what it and is. And then also in the the realm of you know sort of chilling gut punch and subversive use of humor, the you know this this sort of sweetness of Fritz and Natalia finally getting together with then the MC doing that whole song comedic mm-hmm. song about oh he's fallen in love with the gorilla yep. and you know oh if they could yep. only see her as the way I could see her they would understand our love and then at the end that horrible punchline where he's like she is Jewish you know it's just oh it's it's so chilling we've used that word so many times but it's so well done so yeah yeah Yeah. excited for you to see I really want to watch this movie again so (laughs) (laughs)
1: um yes I'm really glad you chose this because I don't think I ever would have watched it because i thought i'd already seen it so um so yeah i'm yeah, glad i'm glad too. i got the opportunity good
0: yeah I'm, I'm so glad that you liked it all right do you want to share what movie we're going to be covering in the next episode i'm very excited yes. for this one.
1: so next week we will be talking about the movie aliens Woo! which geneva was bummed that i chose because yes. she wanted to choose it first
0: <laughs> pretty sure i showed um, you this movie so i feel like you kind of stole it from me but it's fine
1: i (laughs) yes i'm very 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 excited to talk about this movie it's so much fun but also one of the best action movies of all like it's i yeah it's gonna be a fun discussion Mm -hmm. so yeah join us for that next week you guys all right yeah thanks everyone Bye. bye
0: thanks for listening If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.